Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, talking about a new book that's all about James Cook, the famous British captain in the British Royal Navy back in the 18th century. You may know him from his mapping of Newfoundland. He also did a lot over in the Hawaiian Islands along the coastline of Australia, first recorded circumnavigation of New Zealand. And he's a figure who is generally associated with those more temperate locations. But as this new book called Captain Cook Rediscovered Voyaging the Icy Latitudes Profiles, he was an individual who spent a lot of time at the poles and particularly up in northern Canada, what is now northern Canada, did a lot of work on ice and trying to understand more about sea ice, its formation, and really trying to get a better sense of how people can navigate through icy waters. And it's one of these stories that in the canon of his career doesn't get discussed very much, but it has a lot of contemporary relevance. As we look more and more towards the north, the situation up there with the Northwest Passage, for instance, as it continues to open up for navigation as climate change reduces the amount of ice every year, there's a lot that is in this story that is relevant to us today here in the 21st century. So I wanted to talk about this with the author, David Nicandri. He's an author and a historian. He's the former executive director of the Washington State Historical Society. He has written multiple books that re-examine these stories of European explorers in North America, a couple quite interesting ones on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he is an individual who likes to look at these type of individuals and try to get a more fulsome understanding of European explorers and the way in which their work contributed to an increased understanding of North America back in Europe and in European culture. So I had the chance to talk to David a little earlier. So let's get right to my conversation with David Nicandri. Okay, and David Nicandri joins me now all the way from Tumwater, Washington. David, how are you today? I'm fine, Sean. Thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, we just talked before we started to record here. I'm not familiar with Tumwater, so anybody who might not know where that is, where exactly are you situated out there in, in Washington State? I think the most recognizable framework would be to say that Tumwater is the is at the southernmost point of uh, Puget Sound, Salish Sea. That's as far south as you can get uh, in that inland uh, body of water. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that sort of situates us there a little bit. And I'm guessing that as I sit here under a little bit of snow as we wait for the Rideau Canal to freeze in Ottawa, the same is not true for you. <laughs> uh, it's been uh, it's been uh, a steady torrent of rain all day. <laughs> rolled down to my local athletic club was flooded this morning. I was the last one out. <laughs> so we've had a we've had a very temperate winter, wet, uh, and a little warmer than typical. Okay, yes, uh, sort of what you expect when people talk about those uh, Pacific Northwest uh, winters. 
the classic one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, so let's get into the book a little bit here again. It's Captain Cook Rediscovered Voyaging to the Icy Latitudes, new book that just came out. And David, I'm curious as, as just a starting point, what was the motivation for you to come to this book, to this story and revisit Captain Cook's story, which is something that of a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the show doesn't always have a lot of popular imagery to it. But I think Captain Cook is a figure who most people would recognize the name a, a little bit. So what brought you to have this rediscovery of that story? Well, I have if I have a specialty in my historical research and writing, it's the history of uh, exploration. I had done a book on Lewis and Clark about 10 years ago. And I had actually edited uh, an anthology of essays about Captain Cook for a museum exhibition. And museum work was, uh, in fact, the mainstay of my career professionally. But uh, about 10 or 15 years ago, um, uh, while I was finishing the Lewis and Clark book, I, be I got the idea that with the uh, and, and knowing the broad pattern of, of exploration history in, in the Pacific Northwest and Northwest Coast, as it's referred to alternatively on either side of the border, um, uh, I, I was vaguely aware of the broad pattern of, of Cook's voyages, but, but the idea kind of landed in my mind that in this era where one could sail through the Northwest Passage now, unlike when Cook attempted the same in 1778, I thought that's an interesting framework uh, uh, to reconsider uh, Captain Cook, because uh, the, the, the seed the, the, the seed kernel for the book was, man, if uh, if Cook were to sail now, uh, he may or may not have gotten through, but he would have gotten a lot farther because the ice has receded to such an extent uh, in, in 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 the Arctic. So that was that's probably half of it. The other half, I guess, would be fair to say, uh, people refer to me. Uh, uh, as a bit of a of an iconoclast, uh, I, I kind of revised or attempted to revise the understanding of the Lewis and Clark expedition west of the uh, Rocky Mountains, and uh, I thought, well, maybe there's some possibility of taking uh, uh, recharacterizing Cook, especially in this era of significant uh, uh, climate change. Do you think part of the reason why this part of his story hasn't gotten as much attention as some of the, the Southern things, we'll talk about the palm tree paradigm in a minute, is that there's, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it seems like there's this romance to the European sailing exploration folks who did so south, um, you know, around the Caribbean and the Southern part of what's now the United States. Is part of that just inherent in the story that sailing north in the cold given how often it turned out extremely poorly for those on the ships there's just not that same romantic vision that we have of it well there's a uh, there's a great literature of exploration in the north as well sir john franklin and go either side of uh, sir john uh, those there's in a way there's kind of a romance to that as well but i think it's fair to say to get to the heart of your question sean the Cook's voyages have without question become captive to what indeed I call in my book the, the palm tree paradigm. Um, uh, uh, European civilization from Cook's time since uh, has, has always wrapped him up in and around the notions of so-called Polynesian exoticism 
And of course, sandy beaches uh, to the average person are nominally a, a more appealed uh, prospect and landscape than uh, dodging uh, a wayward polar bear uh, north of the Arctic Circle. So, so there's a combination of cultural and uh, and climat- climatic related uh, features that have informed the Cook story. But the larger point, and I guess this is the best way of summarizing it, although Cook has in a sense been pigeonholed as a tropical explorer, I think if there's an essential point I tried to make in the book, uh, without without making a judgment of Cook as a tropical explorer, explorer. he was certainly an ex, uh, a polar explorer of the first rank, and even above and beyond that. And this is perhaps the most remarkable thing, and uh, and uh, uh, and that's that he was uh, he was a pioneering sea ice scientist, and that is just simply not a field of endeavor that one associates Captain Cook with. We think of him as well, on sandy beaches, palm tree backgrounds, but in fact, he sailed more miles uh, along the world's oceans uh, in the high latitudes than he did within the tropical zone. So I think we've kind of outlined the, the framework for a, a new and fresh look at Cook. Yeah, and do you think that that is the case, This the, the palm tree paradigm that you mentioned? Is that the case that most explorers or most sailors who did sail both north-south is that a common refrain that you found in your work that this isn't something that is specific to Cook? That's more universal within the literature. Well, that's a very good question. Um, well, certainly Cook's captive to it, and uh, and of course the, the South Seas were um, were um, kind of the primary area of investigation for the European, the Western European maritime powers, in the middle to last half of, of the 18th century. Uh, referring also to the Enlightenment voyage of uh, Antoine de Bougainville, uh, who actually preceded Cook uh, in, into the South Pacific. So uh, uh, that that's uh, that that area, uh, uh, geographic area of exploration, has always seemingly held a particular fascination. That the by definition, the polar regions have been harder to access. Uh, by uh, uh, explorers over the centuries, so there's, uh, there's 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 less narrative, but there's still meaningful stories to be told there, and and that was the impulse behind my looking at Cook uh, as both an Antarctic and an Arctic explorer. So let's talk about him as a ice scientist and this idea of Cook, because as, as you mentioned, this kind of really goes against the grain of what most people think of when they think of James Cook and, and his explorations, his work. So what type of scientific work was he doing? And, and how do you frame polar ice science, given that certainly in the past 40 years, at the very least, it has become more and more popularized. People talk about the scientists who are in the north working on the ice a lot more. So, you know, if we have that vision of what the, the people today do, how do we kind of contrast that with some of the work that he was doing, obviously, with very different resources? Well, Cook has always been associated with the notion of scientific exploration, as opposed to the Columbian era of exploration, which was uh, which was more overtly uh, imperial driven, had an uh, evangelical overtone. Um, I'm not saying there weren't aspects of an imperial outlook with uh, Cook's voyages either. 
but that wasn't the paramount uh, goal. It was uh, it was kind of understanding the Earth's topography, geography, processes, and the sciences that are normally associated with Cook are first astronomy, because his first voyage to Tahiti, in uh, and he left in 1768, was to observe the transit of Venus, a famous international experiment uh that that many nations uh, attempted uh, to uh, observe at all points all over the globe the point of which was through a very complicated formula by observing and recording the time it took transit it took venus to transit across the face of the sun one could calculate among other things the distance of the earth to the sun so astronomy has always been paramount botany of course was was probably the most fashionable science uh, of the of the late Enlightenment period. And of course, uh, Joseph Banks uh, was the naturalist on, um, on Cook's uh, first voyage, Johann Reinhold Forster, uh, the second. And they signed up primarily because this was this was the era of the great Linnaean rage of the classification of flora and fauna. And so astronomy and botany have always been uh, the paramount scientific parameter for the scientific aspect of Cook's voyages. What I try to introduce here, again, is the notion that Cook was a, uh, in fact, a pioneering a CI scientist, a scientist and glaciologist. So the way to explain how and why this is relevant, Sean, we need to go back to kind of a, a, a fundamental premise of, uh, of how enlightened thinkers in, in the 18th century thought that the ice one saw in the ocean got there. Uh, contrary to our, our modern kind of axiomatic uh, understanding of things, which is that the water freezes in place, it was long thought at, prior to Cook and Forster, his second voyage naturalist, who made a major contribution along these lines, that the icebergs one saw in the Southern Ocean or the, or the extensive ice packs at a great distance from land got there as an emanation from a terrestrial source. That is, they were uh, fresh water that had frozen within the confines of some landmass and floated out to sea uh, 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 during the spring freshet or some other time, and that is how they got there. And, of course, one might ask, why would anyone think that? And that's because, as uh, probably... Uh, most listeners to the podcast would know when you melt uh, an iceberg, uh, it yields fresh water. Uh, and of course, icebergs are broken off from uh, uh, from from land. They kind of calve off and they float out to sea. And low ice, that is ice pack or field ice, as it's some uh, sometimes called, uh, which does freeze in place at, at depth in in the uh, in the world's oceans. When you melt that, if it if it has been frozen long enough. That yields fresh water as well. So what puzzled people up to the time of Cook and Forster is why, how, could, how can you melt this ice? In a, you find these great bodies of ice in salt water, yet when you melt them, they're fresh. How can this be? And that led to the theory prior to Cook's time, he and Forster demolished the idea, that somehow the, uh, the, the ice one saw in the Arctic or, or encircling the continent of Antarctica had to emanate from some terrestrial surface, and Cook uh, was the Cook was the first to uh, uh, record the process of glaciation uh, at South Georgia, the island that Shackleton made famous when he glissaded down into that harbor. Cook literally saw 
icebergs calving off the glacier that uh, went miles into the island's interior. So, so in writing this up in his uh, in his journal and later his uh, admiralty account published by the uh, by the British Admiralty after the voyages, um, Cook was 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 created put the baseline down for the extent of the Antarctic ice pack. He did so for the Western Arctic on his Northwest Passage voyage, and I maintain more more importantly, he, he pioneered the science of glaciation and uh and sea ice formation that is my attempt at trying to encapsulate it uh in short form so for cook though and the people that immediately followed what is the utility of that for them you know it's it's interesting to you know think about you know if i could put myself into the 17th century i would think yeah that makes sense i mean fresh water and in salt water like i you know you see where that initial thought comes from but for them, as they come in to, to do this work and they make these discoveries, what is the utilitarian value of knowing that for them? And how does it then influence the rest of his travels through these northern icy waters? Well, the, there's a very practical, uh, almost routine value to this discovery, which is uh, that it was discovered that these ice surfaces, either icebergs or low ice, chunked up and brought on, on board uh, the ship and melted, could yield fresh water. If one reads Cook's instructions issued by the Admiralty before each of his three voyages, or you, or you just kind of plod through uh, the, his voluminous journals and, uh, and the published accounts that are derived therefrom, you will see um, one repeated logistical refrain. I need to recruit my wood and water. So finding uh, water at great distances from land, there was, in fact, Sean, significant tactical value to this discovery. And yeah, when, when you make when you put it that way, yeah, that obviously does provide a lot of value to him. And then, you know, moving forward, does does he see himself as this polar ice scientist and does he recognize the significance of this discovery as he's going through the process he has a kind of a what i call a dawning awareness that he's on to something big of course cook got mixed up in in, in a fashion of speaking with a, a lot of big ideas that were kind of puzzling uh, uh the enlightened community of, of western europe uh, in his time um, was there a continent in the southern hemisphere that mirrored the size of Eurasia in the northern hemisphere? And that was long thought to be the case. Another puzzle was, was there a Northwest Passage? And uh, Cook wasn't sent out in the field, to be sure, in order to be making breakthroughs in the field of glaciation or sea ice formation. He had, he had his, uh, his guidelines from uh, from the Admiralty and from the Royal Society. It was pretty prescriptive as to what he was to look for in, uh, and in, in scientific terms, certainly astronomy and botany, a little bit of geology and some others were, uh, were, were always listed in the, in the catalog of duties. So, um, uh, but, uh, uh, so I think it's fair to say, quite honestly, that the characterization of Cook as a polar explorer, that's my doing. I don't think... He quite saw himself as such, um, and uh, so to, to be truthful. But the, but his insights, 
and, and overturning what was um, a, a dominant uh, uh, theory of, of scientific perception until that time is, is nonetheless real. I mean, it, it should be pointed out that really until the 1880s, there was, there was kind of a collateral theory that the poles were free of ice. Uh, in other words, if you could get to the North Pole, you, you'd somehow you, you could get through the, the ice pack that was blocking you in the uh, in the Canadian archipelago or over by Svalbard. And if you could get by that, get past Greenland, you'd find uh, ice-free waters at the pole. So th- there was uh, this this was a kind of, these these uh, this uh, sequence of issues: the uh, southern continent, the Northwest Passage, uh, ice-free poles. Um, uh, because we we all know those are no longer the case now, uh, uh, that there are no raging concern, but they were great questions of of uh, of Enlightenment Europe at the time Cook sailed, and there's no question that Cook provided the breakthrough on the question of where the icebergs in the Southern Sea come from, and that uh, sea ice formed a great length from land. In fact, froze there in place. There was not an emanation from a terrestrial surface. And how do you then try to situate that work, the polar ice work, against some of the cartographic accomplishments? Because the book makes reference to some of the the work that he was doing in mapping out during that first voyage. But you argue that it's the work subsequently that you just talked about in terms of the icy latitudes near the poles that represents a greater significance in the work that he did, if I could sort of put it in those terms. But, you know, how, how do we sort of set those two against each other, if we even need to at all? No, I think they're complementary, Sean. Uh, it's been long recognized by students of Cook that uh, his cartographic accomplishments uh, were of, of, of the first magnitude. I mean, if you just, ima- if you just in your mind's eye, uh, imagine a Mercator projection of the Earth's surface and you kind of look at the Pacific Basin uh, with uh, uh, Asia perhaps on your left and, North, and the Americas on your right, and you see how, they're, how they are distanced by the great Pacific Ocean. That cartographic image is in large measure a function of the, of the, of the, of the uh, uh, geographic uh, work that Cook did on his three voyages. So um, it's, it's long, been, uh, uh, long been since concluded that the cartographic accomplishments of Cook were of the first magnitude. But I've just tried to create an overlay uh, that, uh, and typically those, those insights, topographic, geographic insights, have kind of been limited to uh, the temperate and tropical latitudes. I've just simply tried to extend the reach of Cook's exploratory uh, zeal and rigor to the towards the poles in either direction, and it, it, it's really all of a piece. I got, there's one other aspect, too, that I, I, that I think it's fair to say I tried to cover in this book, and that is most students of Cook are, in fact, um, typically, I mean, over time, there are North American students of Cook. I don't want to pretend otherwise. But the interpretive uh, grounding for the study of Cook has, uh, has, has, has emerged either from Great Britain, of course, that's his homeland, he was from Yorkshire, or from Australia and New Zealand, which in, in, over the course of the 19th century kind of, I mean, Cook kind of developed the persona of almost a founding father in, in, in those countries. 
which was entirely inappropriate, but he was kind of the great British imperial agent. Those nations were part of the former British Commonwealth, and Cook was kind of the, the founding figure, if you will. Um, so, um, uh, but there, there are no people living uh, on the, or at least there weren't then, on the approach to Antarctica, and there were very few people living north of the Arctic Circle. And so, um, uh, 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 there, um, uh, which is to say, those aren't interesting places. In fact, I argue in the book uh, that the fate of the polar ice packs is going to be uh, one of the dominant concerns of uh, civil society. Uh, across the world in the 21st century. And Cook's and his work is kind of an interesting marker along that path. Well, you mentioned the people uh, in the north, at the, the far north. How much, if any, contact did he have with individuals during his Arctic work? And is there any complementary sense of the things that he is discussing as he's doing his work on the ice with perhaps traditional knowledge of groups who have lived in these areas for hundreds and thousands of years? Well, Cook made uh, two landfalls uh, in the high north. Uh, he pulled in uh, at a place called Sledge Island, which is near Nome, Alaska. Uh, and he also stepped ashore at um, uh, uh, on the Chukotka Peninsula, uh, the, f- the far eastern uh, cape of, uh, of modern Russia. And he had encounters, which were generally benign, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with those uh, na- uh, northern uh, uh, native people. Um, he, he, had, uh, he greatly admired the, um, uh, the um, um, uh, handiwork of the, of the people he encountered there. He studied their, the, the sleds they made, the canoes, uh, other uh, uh, aspects of their material culture. Of course, there was a great divide. Uh, that goes without saying in terms of who understood what uh, 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 what was being being said and uh, uh, and communicated. But uh, Cook did. Uh, there, there's one other little piece. Uh, I mean, uh, Cook is, is generally attributed as being the the Westerner who kind of um, was able to define what what has come down through time uh, by poly, uh, by anthropologists. It's known as the Polynesian Triangle. And Cook was absolutely astounded by the fact that the same people he encountered in New Zealand or Eastern Island, going from east to west, or up north to the Hawaiian Islands, was all the same culture. And he was just astounded by, by their ability to uh, cover that vast extent of the Earth's surface. And not to the same extent, but similarly, uh, because Cook's reports were always written up, um, uh, he was he was able to document the fact that the, the people he encountered uh, along the western shore of modern Alaska uh, were essentially the same people that he had that he read about in books that he had on on deck or read about separately that populated Greenland. So there was another little kind of ethnographic connection that that Cook pieced together. So um, uh, Cook's uh, he doesn't quite have the uh, the primacy. Uh, in terms of the of the the encounter, what we call the encounter, the clash of cultures, the intermingling of influences, he doesn't have that same role in the north uh, as he has notoriously in Polynesia and and the South Pacific, but he still had uh, he still made some significant ethnographic findings for the benefit of uh, Europe's perception of that part of the world. 
And were they, were those encounters, were those, you know, you mentioned that there was difficulty in, in the, you know, language barrier, understanding each other back and forth. Did he talk about the individuals who he encountered helping him as he was trying to explore and, and survive and navigate this region? You know, as I think about so many other folks who have tried to, or Europeans who tried to go north and do some work, some exploration work on behalf of European countries up in the north, so many of them struggled with the elements and just the survival in the north. So were the individuals there, did he lean on them for support in that area? No, he did not. Uh, and Cook had a singular advantage in contrast to terrestrial explorers, where for better or for worse, he had the latitude just simply to sail away to his next port of call if, if, uh, if his, his mission dictated that he kind of stay on the schedule and keep moving along. But terrestrial explorers, let's take uh, Sir John Richardson, for example, uh, who was in, who's, uh, was with Franklin on the fir Franklin's first uh, overland expo uh, exploration and then went searching for Franklin. Now, Richardson was the type of figure you're talking about. He, his, his ability to work with Native people was just simply essential to his survival. I'm not saying that, they, that Native people weren't helpful to Cook at every place he traveled. Of course, they were because he and his men would have starved if they hadn't run into, uh, literally sometimes by pure serendipity, people were able to sell them greens or hogs or uh, whatever it might be. But it's not quite the same relationship that terrestrial explorers like a, a Samuel Hearn uh, Sir John Richardson, a Lewis and Clark down here south of the 49th. That's it's an entirely different dynamic than the than the one uh, uh, Cook dealt with. Okay. Now the book also, in a, in a way, and you talked about it earlier about how as we continue through the 21st century, the uh, the receding of the polar ice is really going to be this reckoning for civil society. And it, it seems to me that the, the book has or presents an opportunity for us to look back at some of the work that Cook was doing and relate it a little bit to some of the work that's being done today and the challenges that we all face with climate change. So for you as the author and the, the researcher of this particular story, how do you think that we in 2020 can use this story to great effect and, and increase our understanding of the current challenges going on with Northern ice? Well, that's a great question. And as I said earlier, it's, it's going, uh, in fact, I, I wrote the book, of course, before the pandemic and uh, maybe the, the pandem pandemic has changed the calculus as to uh, what the, uh, uh, the, the, the great challenges uh, that, that we will face here in, in the uh, 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 21st century. But um, uh, I think if, if reduced to its essence, Sean, I'd say that question is best answered by saying how much of it we've lost. Because if you were to overlay on a map of either the uh, North Pole or the South Pole and take note of when Cook, where and when Cook struck the ice, versus where one would encounter the same substance today, it's a remarkable recession. I mean, as it is now, I mean, seasonally, um, one can't um, uh, go through the Northwest Passage to the uh, northern Canadian archipelago 
Uh, uh, I mean, seasonally, one can go through the Northwest Passage today rather routinely. Um, um, and, of course, Cook was stymied uh, north, uh, north of Alaska, and perhaps a good thing, because if he had been seduced into going farther east, uh, he might have been the early version of Sir John Franklin, never to be heard from again, or until uh, a century or more later. So, as I said, he's a marker for how much, uh, the, how much of the ice we've lost. And I've tried, uh, 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 it's not my natural idiom as a historian or storyteller, but what I tried to fold into the narrative uh, are some stories about, uh, about walruses, polar bears, uh, the, the um, kind of the, the northern, these iconic northern species, and, uh, and, and who are also at risk, I mean, primarily at risk, perhaps more so than humankind. So, um, uh, so I, I try to give uh, some flavor for life uh, at, the, at the extremes uh, of the world. I mean, I, I, I found it charming, uh, however quaint that might sound, uh, to learn as I got into the Cook story that since they were frequently sailing in the fog at the edge of the uh, Arctic ice pack, Cook and, the, and, the, and the, his fellow sailors could always tell how close they were to the ice by the sound of the walruses who were always barking because they sensed a threat from these interlopers who had, who had entered their domain. So uh, that's, that's the kind of story uh, that I've, I tried to relate. Or on the, on the second, I mean, Cook died, of course, in uh, February 1779, but his men under uh, Captain Charles Clark went back the following year. Uh, Cook didn't see any polar bears, interestingly enough, but when, when Clark took the expedition north from Hawaii in 1779, uh, expecting to see the walruses at one point on the voyage up there, they don't see any, and then they, in the next sentence, make a remark about the polar bears uh, sailing out in front of the ships, never having made the connection, of course, that the walruses all dove into the water because <laughs> the polar the polar bears were in the vicinity. So uh, again, it, it's it's kind of a new uh, environment within which to consider uh, the Cook story, arguably the most famous explorer of all time, but one rarely, if ever, associated with the globe's polar zones. Yeah, and it's one of those things, too, where those types of observations that may come across when you read a journal, when you read some of these older journals as anecdotal in a way, those observations are really interesting to think about today and how when scientists go and observe the animals today, how behaviors have changed. It really is a very valuable resource and something that when put in this type of form in this book, it allows us as generalists who are concerned about the issues and the environment and, and the conditions up in the north. It, it gives us a, a window into how things have changed. That's a, that's a point very well made, Sean. For, uh, and I, I can't answer the question, uh, uh, but I can ask it. Uh, um, Cook and his men were surprised at how docile the walruses were on their approach initially. Now, I, I get the thought that now comes to mind, is that, is that the case now? Um, uh, although at the time they did remark that as soon as uh, the hunters started uh, harvesting some of them uh, for fresh meat, which was kind of a, an intriguing tale in its own right, uh, the, the, um, uh, as soon as the walruses saw the flash and the, and the rifles, uh, they, they would dive into the water, try to protect their young and whatnot. 
So uh, there's uh, there's a lot to consider when we talk when we think about the fate uh, of the North, and not in the least respect. Uh, perhaps we should talk about it a little, and that is uh, uh, what's the future of the Northwest Passage in terms of global international diplomatic consideration now here in the 21st century, because um, at, at the rate of ice recession and global climate change, one has to consider whether uh, the, the far Canadian North is is not, in fact, uh, going to become a far more important place in the world's uh, diplomatic consideration than it has been at any time ever in the history of humankind. Well, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting issue and, and a question, right, and something that certainly gets a lot of attention here. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm in Ottawa and, and the federal government, it's, it's an issue for them. But I think nationally people are aware of the, the challenges associated with it. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned you know, the year after Cook dies, uh, or excuse me, or before he dies, that he's not, that, that he leaves before he gets drawn into that Northwest Passage, because, you know, today it's such a, a big deal about being able to get through it and, you know, cruise ships, that's part of the discussion, shipping, obviously. And if you go back a couple hundred years, it's people getting stuck in the ice. And it's it's such an interesting dichotomy to think about how important it was for people in ships to get out of there before the, the winter came. And now it's more, the discussion is more about how can we best use it when it's not frozen, which I might suggest isn't the most pressing issue when we think about no ice being in the Northwest Passage. Right. And, and indeed, uh, Sean, there's kind of an analog to consider, because although it was unintended by Cook, I mean, Cook is generally uh, accredited uh, by historians as having invented the Northwest Coast uh, sea otter uh, uh, trade. And in fact, he was quite dismissive of that prospect. Uh, and it wasn't until after he died and his men got to China that uh, a pelt that they had got at Nootka Sound in order to provide some warm weather gear for the voyage north, when they uh, actually began to get a hint of this when they stopped in Kamchatka on the way back, that that a pelt that they might have gotten for a hatchet would would sell for uh, uh, eighty or one hundred Spanish dollars once they once they got to uh, the the South China ports. So, um, uh, as I say, Cook is generally credited with that, but that that all played out after he was dead. He was rather dismissive of it. But the, the point I'm building up to uh, actually is this, is that in the wake of Cook, for better or for worse, um, the, the siege of uh, traders from Great Britain, from South Asia, East India Company, uh, American say, uh, seamen, mer uh, merchants from uh, New England, of course, flooded to the northwest coast. And uh, it was, uh, uh, was a, a tremendous uh, external uh, infusion. Uh, and d disrupted uh, the native societies for all time. Uh, that that comes after Cook, but in, but Cook's ex expedition points the way. The larger point I'm building to is that that rush to the northwest coast for the sea otter pelts. Um, uh, perhaps then there's going to be a rush to the north, to to northern Canada, uh, to the the the, the, nor the northern circle of nations. Uh, more generally over the course of the next century or two, and uh, somewhat infamously, I think this is generally well recognized, all of the nations of the North are kind of militarizing the zone up there. Uh, they're building icebreaker fleets. So 
the Northwest Passage is going to in, is going to loom uh, increasingly large uh, 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 here in the next century or two. And uh, oddly enough, uh, James Cook from uh, Whitby in Yorkshire uh, was one of the first to kind of get uh, tangled in the ice up there uh, in the late 1770s. Yeah, as you say, it's a great analog to what's going on today. Great story. So, again, the title of the book is Captain Cook Rediscovered Voyaging the Icy Latitudes. David, where can people find the book if they want more uh, more Captain Cook and, and read all about these uh, great stories? Thanks, Sean. They can order from uh, University of British Columbia Press, uh, ubcpress.ca. Uh, or from Amazon.com, and I'm sure any local bookseller would be gladly uh, would be happy to put in an order and, and put the book in your hands. Um, thanks again for the opportunity to talk about it. I appreciate it a great deal. So there you have it, my conversation with David Nicandri. Again, the book, Captain Cook Rediscovered, Voyaging to the Icy Latitudes, and that's from our friends over at UBC Press, and I thank them for helping to set this conversation up today. So we certainly encourage you to check out the book. And that'll do it for another week here on the History Slam. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, the ratings, throw in a comment too. Why not? Helps us out with the algorithms and head on over to activehistory.ca a lot of great stuff over there this week and last we're starting off 2021 strong everybody so head on over to activehistory.ca and of course do let me know what you want to hear on the show you can get in touch historyslam at gmail.com you can also find me on twitter at the sean graham so stay safe everybody we'll be back with you again next week but until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.